0: and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. Last year, Emmy Award-winning actress Juliana Margulies hosted a Holocaust memorial special called The Hate We Can't Forget, which featured the stories of four Holocaust survivors. In that documentary, Juliana sounded the alarm that Holocaust education across the country was severely lacking. After filming, Juliana partnered with the Museum of Jewish Heritage, a living memorial to the Holocaust here in New York, to help create the Holocaust Educator School Partnership, or HESP. Juliana is with us now to explain what that is and what she hopes it will accomplish. Juliana, welcome to People of the Pod. Thank you so much for having me. So please tell our audience, what is the Holocaust Educator School Partnership, or HESP?
1: HESP is an easier way to say it, and actually Jack Klieger, who is the the, the CEO of uh, the Museum of Jewish Heritage, he calls, he calls them the HESPians. So HESP is a program that I started with the Museum of Jewish Heritage after I hosted that CBS documentary on the Holocaust. When I realized how little education there was in our country, and with the rise of anti-Semitism and Holocaust deniers, I just felt... I felt despair, to be honest with you. I just thought it's ignorance Mm -hmm. because people are not educated. And when you do not learn history, history repeats itself. Mm -hmm. And so after I hosted it, I thought to myself, well, what can I do? I'm just one little person, I'm not a humongous star, but I have a bit of a platform. And I thought, well, Let me try and use my voice and the small platform that I have to make change. Mm -hmm. So luckily, I knew Jack Klieger, and I said I hosted this Holocaust Remembrance documentary for CBS and MTV, and they paid me. I didn't even think I was going to get paid, to be honest with you, because it was, of course, a labor of love to do it, and I felt weird taking money for it. And so I took the hefty check that they gave me, and I said, let's figure out how to educate our children, because these are seeds that you have to plant early so that when these people become adults, this idea that conspiracy theories and the rest of it, they won't penetrate because you already have that education and the knowledge inside of you to say, that's crazy. Mm -hmm. No. Mm -hmm. And also... It wasn't just about antisemitism for me. It was about, and this is how we're approaching it with HESP, it's about genocide. It's about racism. It's about homogenizing human beings. You know, it it is about putting people in a category who are different than you and saying you don't belong. So it really spans the spectrum of the entire world and all the people in it. For me, antisemitism, is incredibly frightening because family members of mine were Holocaust survivors. I'm a Jew, (laughs) I'm raising my son Jewish, and I just felt like I had a call to action after I hosted that documentary, and watching the documentary, I learned a lot. But really, I think it's about hate, and as we like to say, it has never again.
0: It's scary, right? Raising Jewish children is scary as a mom. I mean, it's wonderful and rewarding and rich, but scary.
1: Well, it wasn't to me at all until I did this documentary. And my, my girlfriend, who lives right around the corner from me and her son goes to St. Anne's, She said, well, how does your son get to school? And I said, he takes the subway. We live downtown, and he goes to school uptown. Her son goes to school in Brooklyn. And she said, oh, I won't let him on the subway. And I said, why? And she said, because he loves to wear his Star of David around his neck. And I'm afraid. And I just couldn't believe I was hearing those words. It's 2023. We live in New York City. And many people have asked me why I've started this program in New York City, because isn't New York City the center of the Jews? (laughs) You know, they talk about that. The fact of the matter is, we're in the second semester of this program that I started, and it is shocking how many 7th, 8th, and high school students do not know anything about the Holocaust. In fact, two weeks ago, one of my interns was teaching the hour course on the Holocaust and the history of the Holocaust, Mm -hmm. and an 8th grade boy up in the Bronx asked if there were any Jews still alive after 6 million were killed. So that's where we're at. So it's
0: an hour-long course, but there's more to it than that. Can you kind of walk us through the components of this partnership program? Yes.
1: We take college and graduate students who apply to the program. In our first semester, it was just starting out, and we had two. And it is a paid internship where they take an eight-day crash course at the Museum of Jewish Heritage on teaching the Holocaust, through one of our professional Holocaust professors there. They then go to schools that we contact and give from 7th to 8th grade all the way through high school one-hour classes on what the Holocaust was, what it did to the Jewish race, and how it was part of what World War II was about.
0: Do they step into the classroom and and take the place of a
1: teacher for a period, basically? So they come into the classroom, we talk to the principal first and the teachers, and it's usually in a history period, it depends on the school's curriculum, and they step into the classroom and they give this hour lesson and children get to ask questions on occasion, although they are dying out now, we are able to bring in a Holocaust survivor. My idea now is because the Holocaust survivors are dying out is I would like to bring in the children and the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren of Holocaust survivors to tell the stories of their, of their ancestors so that these stories don't get lost yeah. and they don't die out because um, as we're seeing, anti-Semitism isn't dying out.
0: So does it go beyond the classroom, or does does it stop
1: there? Okay. So because it's affiliated with the Museum of Jewish Heritage, we desperately feel that no child money should never be an issue when it comes to education. So we then, after the class, a lot of scheduling is involved, but they're so on it at the Museum of Jewish Heritage. Then we supply buses and bring the children to the museum, which is beautiful. It's downtown, and all the exhibits are quite something. Right now, it's this incredible, the hate we know. And it shows the very beginning of, before World War II happened. And then you get to see this journey that they took all the way after the Holocaust and after World War II was over. So they get to go and experience what we were teaching in their class and they get to ask questions. And it's been really heartening because we had an eighth grade class. I forget if it was the Bronx or in Brooklyn who they were so taken by the class that was taught They chose for their 8th grade project an entire exhibition based on the Holocaust and what Jews went through, and it was absolutely just gut-wrenchingly beautiful. It made me so proud. They sent me all the pictures of it. I was away working, so I couldn't go, but these kids were beaming, and they felt like they were doing something. And I think the idea for me of what HESP is and any kind of Holocaust education— I think because there's such darkness surrounding it, and I can understand why parents would be nervous to let a 7th and 8th grader learn about it. I understand the fear, but what I'm trying to implement into the program is this idea of heroes. Who are these heroes that stood up in the face of evil, Jews and non-Jews alike? And right now in our country... I actually feel it's more important that the non-Jews are standing up for the Jews. The way that I march for Black Lives Matter, the way that we all march for women, you know, like this is a universal problem and we all need to stand behind it. And if all the communities that are so oppressed join together, power in numbers. And let's look at it more as, you know, I guess shining a light on something that will make you feel— heroic to stand up to evil.
0: How many kids has the program reached so
1: far? I'll tell you what's been really amazing to watch is so the first semester we were small and we had our two interns who did an incredible job and they reached over 1700 children. You know, and I always look at any kind of philanthropy the way I look at acting, which is if I'm on stage and I reach just one person in the audience, then I've done my job. And that's how I feel about this program. So knowing that they've reached 1,700 children, maybe half of them didn't care or weren't listening or weren't moved, but there certainly were a handful that were. And what it also did was when I went to the museum to congratulate our interns when they graduated, we publicized it and took some pictures. Our next semester, we had 20 applicants. And in fact, I was just talking with—AJC's been really helpful. They're helping me expand it throughout the country. But it was Laura Shaw-Frank who told me, she said, what I love about this, and she's a Holocaust historian, she said is that it's young people teaching young people because kids respond to young teachers. Mm-hmm. So to have these 20-, 20, 21-, 22-year-old interns walking into a classroom full of, you know, ninth graders, 10th graders, 11th graders, and talking at their level— is actually incredibly helpful. I learned something from the documentary. AJC
0: has this wonderful resource called Translate Hate. It's a glossary that's online, and it teaches people about anti-Semitic tropes and terms that have been around, yes, since the dawn of time, and new ones, too. It's constantly updated. And I learned a new term in that documentary called Godwin's Law, and I hope that we add it to Translate Hate later this year. And Godwin's Law is the longer an online conversation goes on, the likelihood of a comparison to Nazis or Adolf Hitler rises 100%. I thought that was so interesting. And so social media does play such a significant role in school children's lives. TikTok, Twitter, Snapchat, probably a few have been invented that I don't know about yet. What role do you believe social media companies should be playing in reigning in this anti-Semitic rhetoric,
1: if any role at all? Well, I, I think they need to be responsible for misinformation mm-hmm. and hate speech. I, I'm all for the First Amendment, but where do you draw the line? Where do you draw the line here? Mm-hmm. I mean, we really—you know, children are sponges. And um, you plant one little seed, and it can be a good seed or a bad seed. Mm-hmm. And it's also—you know, social media is toxic. I know how I—I'm I, not a big social media person, Um I had to join Instagram when I wrote my memoir because Random House said, "Wait, you're not on social media?" So I, I joined the lesser of all evils because I figured the only people following me on Instagram are people who like me, right? So I'm not going to get uh, a lot of hate mail there. Think again. Uh, I know. Juliana, I know. I actually, I, I realized. <laughs> I was like, and don't read the comments. Right. Um, <laughs> Always. But I do believe that it is their job to filter out the hate and the misinformation. Mm -hmm. I really do. I do not think they should be allowed to peddle this incredibly damaging and life-threatening conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. It's it's not helping anyone, and it's making people more angry. I know how I feel just scrolling through Instagram— you know, I, as an adult who is not into any of it and who feels very secure in who I am and in my position in life with my family and who I am as a person to my friends and my my child and my husband, I start feeling insecure. So if I, a confident woman in her 50s, is feeling insecure scrolling through Instagram, I can't imagine what it's doing to children.
0: I love the way that you put it in the film, um, that just a little bit, Of Holocaust knowledge can actually be dangerous, that it's because it's just enough for someone to invoke it for political reasons or to make a point, but not enough to take responsibility and to try to prevent it from ever happening again. Was it important that this partnership that you are funding be robust, be in-depth, be more than just an hour-long course?
1: Absolutely. I mean, obviously, you know, it's very difficult to teach everything in an hour, right? So the idea is that those who hear about it and learn about it from that course will further their interest in it and that the schools will eventually realize this is something we need to teach. This should be a mandatory class in our history program. The same way we learn about how America was founded, you know, like this is just as important especially because it's just not that long ago. You know, it's quite recent. If you look at the big scale of our world and how many years it's existed, this is not that long ago. And I do believe that institutions, Holocaust museums, all over this country are doing a tremendous job in showing what it was like. You know, we're doing an exhibition in October because it's the 80th anniversary of the Danish rescue. and. At MJH, they're doing an incredible—I'm on the advisory board now. They're doing the Danish Rescue, and it's for children and families. It's age-appropriate for everyone. And it's showing the heroes that saved 7,200 Jews. If you could tell our listeners a little bit about what that Danish Rescue is, what what you're referring to. So the Danish Rescue—you know, it's interesting. I just read this book that Richard Kluger wrote. It's coming out in August— called Hamlet's Children, and it's all about the Danish rescue. And very few people know about it. Um, I didn't before I read the book. So Denmark was in a very tricky place in World War II. They had made a treaty with Germany, and they were in a place where they were Nazi-occupied, but they had made a deal, King Christian had made a deal, that the Nazis could not harm their Jews because they were their Danish brothers and sisters, and they were not to be touched. Now, here's a country that is under Nazi occupation, and they hated it, and they sort of were grinning and bearing it. And then towards the end, when the Nazis realized they were losing the war, when America came in and England came into the war, and they realized that this was going to be a losing battle, the Danes realized that their Danish Jewish brothers and sisters were in trouble. And boatload by boatload, At midnight, they rescued 7,200 Jews to Sweden, which was neutral. I think what's so important about that story, and I think for people who have gone to Yad Vashem in Jerusalem, where I just was this past December, to see all these points of light, what would have been had 6 million Jews not been murdered? Mm -hmm. Where would the life, where would the tree have gone? How far would it have grown? And these 7,200 Jews that were saved, their families have lived on. And it's to show it's about the tree of life, which was being chopped down before it could even begin. And it's such a heroic story of how they did it. We even have the actual boat that we've refurbished. That's actually in Mystic, Connecticut, because we couldn't get it to New York yet, but we will eventually— it is such a sort of miraculous story, and it wasn't just adults who saved these Jews. It was everybody in Denmark rose to the occasion. And when you go to Yad Vashem, I mean, I, I had just finished reading the book, and I walked down the Path of the Righteous at Yad Vashem, and I saw a plaque. So for those of you listening who don't know what the Path of the Righteous is, it's the path of all the heroes, the non-Jews that stood up to the Nazis and protected the Jews from the Nazis, and there was this beautiful plaque to the Danish rescue, and I just, you can't help but weep. I mean, it's, where are those heroes? And so that's the light I want to shine on Hesp and our Hespians, is that these are our heroes. Let's be heroes. What's amazing to me is, in my business, you know, I'm an actress, and all the big movies are about heroes. So why aren't we turning that into, okay, so that's what makes money, right? Heroes. So let's make this about being a hero, not about being an anti-Semite or, you know, whatever labels they have for people who (laughs) love the Jewish people, who are Jews. Let's turn this into a moment of heroism and change the narrative so that our children grow up wanting to be heroes. I want to hear more
0: about this trip to Israel. I've encountered many Holocaust survivors who don't talk about their experience until they make a trip to Israel. And then they feel empowered, obligated to tell their horrific story. I'm curious what you witnessed, what you experienced in Israel, both at Yad Vashem,
1: but also in the greater country at large. Yeah, it was a magical experience. And we really crammed a lot in in 10 days because we wanted to make sure, when are we going to be back here? Let's do it right. So we actually... We hired a professor to take us around for 10 days. And really, we went to Tel Aviv. We went to the Negev. We went to Jerusalem. We even actually took a day trip to Jordan and went to Petra, which was mind-boggling. We went to Masada. I mean, we did it all. We met with political consultants to try and understand the politics. And we went everywhere and learned about so much First of all, I think the thing that struck me the most, my sister was born in Jerusalem in 1960, my big sister. They left when she was 1 and I had never been to Israel cuz my parents moved back to New York, but I always felt this, oh my sister was born in Jerusalem, <laughs> you know, I have to I have to go. And we actually had meant to go for my son's bar mitzvah, but COVID happened and there was lockdown. So that didn't happen. And then the next year we were going to go and it was Omicron. And so that so this year, and actually I'm glad I waited till he was 15 because I actually think he got a lot more out of it. But one of the things that hit me the hardest was how young the country is. 75. It is so young. Yeah. Because I grew up in England for a great part of my life. Every time I'd come back home, I'd think how young our country is. <laughs> like, God, these... It's so young here. You know, I love America. But some of the ideas, it's like, haven't we moved past this? You know, there's still this sort of—it's very young. We live in a young country. Israel is very young, but it's founded on such a strength of community and belonging. And I remember just landing in Tel Aviv, and I looked at my husband. We were walking through the airport, and I went, Wow we are with our people. It was like, I've never felt like I belong more. Most people don't think I'm Jewish. Most people think I'm Greek or Italian because of my name. And I didn't grow up Jewish. My mother is, they're both 100% Jewish, but my mother's family tried to keep their Jewishness quiet because her grandmother, who had fled from Prussia Persecuted for being a Jew, didn't want to cause any reason for someone to harm her. So they didn't celebrate Passover and Yom Kippur and Hanukkah. Mm-hmm. They just stayed very quiet and they didn't talk about it. They spoke Yiddish, mm-hmm. and they had Jewish food, but it but they didn't advertise their Jewishness, right? Because that caused tremendous pain in their family. So for me, once I became an adult, because I didn't, I wasn't bat mitzvahed. And I married a Jewish man who said, I want to raise our son Jewish, and I want a Jewish wedding. And I said, great, I'm in. Let's do it. (laughs) It's fine. I don't care. But as I've sort of grown into the role of my life— as not just the actress and the independent woman but also as part of a unit part of a family we do Shabbat on Fridays even if it's just to light the candles and to say goodbye to the work week and to hel- hello to our friends and family putting down phones it's the t- tradition of Judaism because i'm not a religious person i've always felt any kind of religion is a little bit sexist mm-hmm. um and even though i played a hasidic jew in a a movie years ago called *The Price Above Rubies*, and I went to Borough Park and and did some research on the on the women there because I was so. I guess I was confused as to why you would love this life mm-hmm. because to me it felt suffocating, incredibly sexist, and um, demoralizing to be a Hasidic wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to see their pride and joy in their work and how they felt about themselves. It was quite eye-opening. You know, I was judging. I was definitely judgy about it, and I learned a really good lesson, you know? (laughs) But I have found a tremendous joy in the traditions of our Jewish heritage. Mm -hmm. And our son knows Friday nights, he can invite any friend over, but before the pizza comes, we're gonna just do our blessings Light the candles and kiss each other. There's something about tradition that is so lost in today's world that gives a sense of meaning and a root to the family. This has been
0: a fascinating conversation. Thank and you. I know that it could go on for hours longer. <laughs> but thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for doing this podcast. Yes. And really love it. Really hope this program expands uh, across the country. Thank you so much for having me. In case you missed the previous episode, be sure to tune in for a conversation with AJC's chief policy and political affairs officer, Jason Isaacson, in which he explains Israel's contentious judicial reforms and the reactions from Israeli society and some American Jewish organizations. And another programming note, the Forgotten Exodus, AJC's award-winning narrative podcast series about Jews from Arab lands and Iran, has been nominated for a Webby Award, the Internet's highest honor. But to win Best Limited Podcast Series and share these stories with a wider audience, we need your help. Go to AJC.org Webby and cast your vote for The Forgotten Exodus today. Please don't wait. Voting ends on April 20th. That's AJC.org W-E-B-B-Y. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is T.K. Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at People of the pod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, And hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.